0: Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash of the Articulate Fly and tonight I'm joined by Mike Taylor from Finn's West. How's it going, Taylor?
1: Hey Marvin, it's going good, man.
0: Yeah, it's still snowing though, right?
1: <laughs> yes, it is. May the twenty first and it's snowing.
0: That's crazy. Well, folks, um, if you like the podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you'd share it with a friend. I would really appreciate a review in iTunes, and if you could subscribe and a podcatcher of your choice, it would really uh, help us out with our advertisers. And before we get rolling, I want to give a shout out to tonight's sponsor. It's the First Fly Shop in Bryson City, North Carolina, the Tuckasegi Fly Shop, and they have two locations. They have one in Bryson City and one in Silva. And you owe it to yourself to go visit Dale and Bobby, meet the other folks in the shop and the shot dogs. They're really good dudes and they can help you out a ton. So, so Mike, I ask all of my guests, I'm sorry, Taylor. it's a hard thing to break, uh, Taylor, I asked all of my guests to share their earliest fishing memory.
1: Well, Marvin, uh, you know, if, I, uh, I, I guess right off the hand, I've got two, to be honest with you and, and. I, I, we poached the golf horses in Western North Carolina with my dad and brother. Um, I, I remember that for sure. But I also remember being in my grandfather's Grady White on the Hamilton Sound during the summers with our family. I think that would be the one, I believe.
0: Awesome. And what were you fishing for? I don't
1: know. That was three. Anything that would bite the end of the, of the deal. But rock, I just know that, you know, I, again, they're from Eastern North Carolina, and rockfish were we a big catch for sure. Uh, at least back then.
0: <laughs> well, that's awesome. When did you come to the dark side of fly fishing?
1: You know, and Marvin, I did, I don't have that classic started fishing with my grandfather when I was super put it down, really. Um, it's just been kind of intermediate and, and haphazard, but I, my family had a hunting lodge with some other families down on the outer banks. And, I, I distinctly remember the first time I touched a fly rod, there was a canal between the ocean and the Curry tuck town that, you know, had bass and little sunfish. and fish. I poppers, you know, when I was six years old, seven years old, that's, that's when I picked up a fly rod. And I didn't say I kept it in my hand for all these years, but that's my first memory of throwing a fly rod.
0: Well, that's awesome. And as you got deeper into the sport, who are some of your mentors?
1: You know, I I guess during the early days, and again, I'm not fooling anybody. I hadn't been fishing nonstop since I was younger, but it it would have been my dad and brother then because they were the ones that stuck it in my hand and yelled at me what I was doing wrong, I believe. And then, you know, more recent over the last ten years of fishing and guiding out here, it's just the local guys. I mean, there's not one name that stands out. It was just the the folks that I jumped in the circle to fish and, and they, they guided me along the way, just local fishermen here in, uh, in Colorado.
0: Well, that's really cool. And I know you're, um, from your accent, you're not from Colorado. You actually grew up in Western North Carolina. What, uh, what launched you on your path to the Northern Rockies?
1: Yeah. So I, you know, for the longest of time, sort of at the end of high school and and through the first of, of college, the first of many years of college. Um, we had friends that came out and sort of planted seeds in the in the Boulder area. So we would drive out, you know, each summer, spring breaks, fall breaks, any break we had to come visit those guys to to climb and and paddle and music festivals and stuff. So at at a certain point, it got tired of driving out here. So I figured. When I was back in Carolina trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life, I just assumed be out here to figure it out, and that was it. Packed it up and came out.
0: Wow. How old were you when you did that?
1: Marvin, we've talked about this. I'm not good with ages and dates. Um, I would say 20, Hell, Marvin, I don't know, 23. I've been out here 27 years, I think. So there's the math, 23,
0: 24, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll stick with that. And I won't ask any more date or number questions. Um, <laughs> the, uh, it's so part of working things out was some white water rafting and some climbing, right?
1: Yeah, totally. Um, the, the climbing was a big thing and again. If fishing was not only on the radar back then for me. I mean, I fished. I definitely fished when I was out here, but just sort of an afterthought. But yeah, when I was out here, I was up in Montana for a while, um, working on an ambulance as a medic and and flying for a flight service, ski patroling, and then whitewater rafting. I'd guided for a Glacier Raft um, in the Flathead Valley for for maybe about six years. If you're going to pin me to it, I think.
0: Well, that's awesome. And when did you decide you wanted to be a paramedic?
1: Oh, wow, man. I think also that seed was planted when I was super young. Um, My mom was uh, an emergency nurse. So I spent a lot of time in the ER. I'd get out of school, you know, back in Carolina, and instead of a babysitter, I would would go sit in the ER. And so Mm -hmm. Sort of the seed was planted then. I, I guess my dad was also on the board of the local rescue squad. He wasn't a rescue dude or a medical guy. He was a he was on the board, so I got to hang out with all the little rescue dudes on the rescue squad back in Carolina as well. So I think the the seed was sort of planted then, and I you know later later in life when I was doing the ski patrol and sort of the, the the mountain rescue and search and rescue. I, just, I said, if I'm going to do this, I had found what I was going to do. I better do it right and to, to go be a paramedic. And again, I know you're going to ask me a date and I don't. I've been a paramedic for 24 years. So there's there's some time
0: There you go. And so did you start out kind of doing what I guess I, I would call traditional kind of urban paramedic stuff and then move to wilderness? Or did you start... With wilderness paramedic stuff out of the box
1: yeah i think i did it backwards so i was back in carolina at at some point you know when i when i lived out here i went back to work worked from my brother in north mt class and that was the traditional sort of emergency medical technician street medicine stuff um but then it quickly coincided into ski patrol and I was a raft guide, and then I was on search and rescue when I came back out here. So I think it all kind of happened at once, and and I just sort of combined in traditional street medicine with remote and wilderness medicine, and it just kept rolling till now.
0: Well, I have to ask you a war story. So can you uh, share one of your most memorable wilderness rescues?
1: Oh wow, Marvin, they all. Uh, and you, you got to understand the pre-hospital and emergency medicine people, are sick people, to be honest with you. So they all start together. Um, you know, I would have to say early, early in my career when I was back in Colorado and I was a new paramedic. I, I lived region of Colorado, and we had a we had pretty intense back. Uh, there was a snowboard, pretty bad snowboard accident up on Pikes Peak. I was a new paramedic, but I was in sort of in the lead paramedical in this thing, that kind of jumps out because that sort of set the set the stone for everything else. That A, I knew this is what I wanted to do and you know, I was kinda of on the edge for sure. So that I think for there, there's been many, but I think that one sort of says a when it was and how reason it sort of again set the stone for the rest of the career.
0: Awesome. And so I know before Fins West, uh, you and your wife started Catabatic Consulting. Can you tell us a little bit about what Catabatic does?
1: Yeah, sure, man. We, uh, Catabatic, we provide remote and wilderness medical support and consulting for projects in remote And along with that when we started the company 17 years ago there's another date I probably got wrong but 17 years ago we started Catabatic Mountain School where we also taught wilderness medicine courses wilderness first aid you know wilderness medicine for paramedics all the way up really to, to advanced providers as well so that's kind of the tagline of what we do and I guess an example uh, one of our, our longest and biggest con- Contracts now is and and run the United States Antarctic programs, um, field camp, remote medical program for for everything that goes on down in Antarctica for for the U.S. research program. Um, so that's that's kind of one example. We've done uh, National Geographic, some other film companies. We've been brought in when they're doing remote shoots to kind of, I don't know, look after the folks, sort of be the safety folks and be medical on standby. Uh, Alaska, we've done several projects up in Alaska for Nat Geo. So that's that's catabatic sort of in a nutshell.
0: Interesting. So you get approached by I guess an expedition might be National Geographic or someone else and you basically put the battle map plan in, kind of logistically move the equipment and put the personnel in place to kind of look after the expedition. Am I kind of understanding that correctly?
1: Yeah, that's it. Well you're you're saying expedition, but in the film industry they're making either a reality TV show, they're on a part of a movie somewhere remote. So everything up to expedition. So just the production, we'll go in and do an emergency action plan, put everything in place, have the equipment they need, and then we'll physically be there if, uh, if somebody gets hurt. So, yeah.
0: Interesting. Have you met any cool movie stars doing that?
1: Well, no, it seems like, and I, I don't know, I, I've never really looked at a contract we pay an attorney to do that, but, I I can name a couple of shows that we've done because they're up and going, but Port Protection was one that we did and they were were just the local folks in this crazy ass place in Alaska. That was a reality show. Uh, Same crew as like below zero. I know, I know you probably heard of that. Um, Stuff like that. No, there's never movie stars at the places we do. They always have, doubles (laughs) (laughs) doubles <laughs>
0: <laughs> there you go <laughs> so so how did how did Finns west grow out of catabatic?
1: Uh, yeah so that this is this is kind of a great story it makes me feel like a moron a little bit that i didn't think about this earlier um there was a fly fishing show in the denver area uh fly fishing rendezvous i believe it was um and a friend of mine knew the organizer and they were just kind of talking about speakers and stuff and I, somehow my name came up and they wanted to mix it up a little bit and add a little bit of education so they called up and said hey you be interested in putting together kind of a, a presentation on trade and uh, not really safety but medical considerations for fishermen guides and outfitters now it's great Great idea. And again, you got to remember, no light bulb has gone off yet. I just thought it was a cool thing because we do speak on the medical side at, at conferences and expos and stuff. So easy enough to do because obviously I was a guide then. Um, and so I, I did the gig. I went and did the presentation. I was blown away that people actually attend a fly fishing show, that here was this sort of medical wilderness, side lot of things. And when I finished, uh, a dude came up, John Perry, and he said, hey, man, I just bought a lodge up in Alaska that I've got at for the past 20 years, and I think it'd be a good idea to get, get you up there to do a course for my guides and staff to uh, kind of put together an emergency plan, you know, for our operation. And I'm going to tell you, Marvin, the light bulb exploded in my, I'd never, ever put the two of you know the guiding in the fly fishing industry and crossed it over into our sort of wilderness catabatic side um and man it just it took off from there i we went up and did the course it was well received it it worked because we've been doing courses all over just not specifically for the for the fishing and hunting industry i to be honest with you marvin i thought that that places like this would already be dialed um and they weren't and i don't mean that in a bad way but you just don't know what you don't know so it just kind of took off from there um you and i sort of talked about carter andrews and and oliver when when all this was on. i gave uh carter andrews he's an old uh, high school buddy we went together in virginia and sort of ran the idea past him and he sort of gave me some advice but he also turned me on to oliver and again ironically Oliver and I grew up in the exact same area in Western North Carolina, but we really didn't know each other. But that that meeting alone sort of launched Fins West because he jumped, he got behind us immediately. Uh, we did his two lodges that same year, and and man, it's, it's just taken off since then.
0: Wow, that's that's amazing. And can you give us a little bit more detail? I mean, I think I have a general idea about what you do when you go out to the lodges, but can you give a little bit more detail for my listeners?
1: Yeah, totally. It's pretty straightforward. We, uh, we roll in, kind of check out the operation um, and get a sense of just where they are, uh, how far they are from definitive care, or any kind of emergency care response. Um, and we put together an emergency action plan. So just a plan that from the staff to the guides, they, they're dialed. They know something goes sideways. It's not a game. And we do it simply because we're pretty simple folks, meaning, you know, you can understand and read it. It's not like an emergency action plan from a nuclear power plant that somebody tried to squeeze into a fly fish or hunting. Um, and then we do a custom wilderness first aid course um, for the guides and staff. And we combine the emergency action plan with the course. So it, it's, you no, know, it's all relative. It's not just pretend kind of stuff. Um, and they on exactly where they are. so obviously, of course, down at Oliver's Lodge in the Bahamas, um, our lodge is, is totally different than a lodge in Alaska, just because of their environment. You know one has flats boats, one has jet sleds. Um, so yeah, that's what we do, and we dial them in to, to be as safe as they can to be prepared if something goes sideways.
0: Well, that's awesome. And how long do the classes last?
1: Well, it depends on how remote they are. Our standard courses, we do one, two, and three-day courses. One-day courses are really for the walkway, one-day shops, um, you know, that are in and out and have relative, relatively quick response from, from emergency services. And then, you know, for Alaska and the Bahamas, Honduras, places where it's non-existent or very delayed, We'll do a two or three day, really dependent on what we assess and what the client or, you know, the lodge owners managers would like to do. So yeah.
0: Cool. And what are some of the coolest places you've been uh working with Catabatic and Finns West?
1: Wow, so oh man. I right, hands down for catabatic and remember catabatic is not the hunting and fishing side. We're we're going all over. It's hands down Antarctica. I mean, that, you know, we've been down there for seven years and we've seen practically the entire, and we get to see it, you know, like no buzz. And it's just amazing. It's an amazing place to to check out for sure. Um, so, yeah, that's the catabatic side, I think. Thins um, West, the fishing, hunting side, cool. There's a bunch. Um, I, I would say the two that jump out would be Guyana um in south america for sure we went down and did uh again one of oliver and costa's projects for Indyfly. fly um we went down and did rewa eco lodge and that was absolutely just insane in the middle of the jungle what these guys are doing and gals are doing down there um and we just got back from guanaja honduras uh, we fish for change and fly fish guanaja and again unbelievable the people were Awesome, the fish. Awesome, what their their program? What they're both of them are different. So I'd say that would probably wrap up the side as well. But they're all awesome. I don't know. I like the Bahamas just as just as much.
0: Yeah. No, I can't ever say I've had a bad day on the water. I've had better days, but not bad days. Exactly. <laughs> so to to kind of help my listeners, if we kind of come back a little bit to help them understand the difference between traditional. First Aid and Wilderness First Aid?
1: Oh, man, Marvin, great question. I appreciate you breaking that up without a doubt. So here's the standard traditional first class is awesome for course, whatever. It's amazing, but it's amazing for what it's designed for. And these courses are designed for you know rapid emergency response. Um, shit goes down, you dial 911 and you take care of your breathing. You take care of your bleeding. And within 10 minutes or so, somebody's gonna show up professionally to take over. Um, and it's great. It's, it's, it's wonderful for what it's designed for. But quite frankly, that is not what we do in the hunting and fishing industry. We're not, most of the time, we're not 10, 15, 20 minutes from definitive care. So that's where wilderness medicine or wilderness first aid comes in. It goes beyond that 10, 15 minutes. So you've taken care of the medicine's the same but you've taken care of the life threats, well now what? I mean, you're still now with this person for who knows another hour or another four days. So we get into the critical thinking about, you know, how to manage somebody that's that's sick or injured after that 10 minutes or so and how to deal with the environment that you're in. I mean, we've got to deal with the heat, the cold, you know, your own your own water you don't have all your equipment there with you. So it sort of takes it beyond the ten minutes. Um and critical thinking. How to how to deal with an injury or an illness when nine one one is not around the corner.
0: Yeah, and I think a lot of people don't really understand that they're in that situation when they're fishing and hunting a lot more than they really think.
1: Oh, no doubt. I mean, and we have we have learned a bunch. I mean, obviously we do this professionally and with our company, but when we show up at lodges and outfitters and guide services and sort of go through it, it, it you, there's, there's, there's wide eyes because you just don't know what you don't know, right?
0: Yeah. And I mean, you know, shock and things like that or hypothermia when it's warm outside and you didn't take a fleece and a rain jacket and you got caught, right? I mean, it's just, it's crazy, right?
1: Well, that's right. And, you know, you bring up a good point and that's one of the major sort of focuses on, on these courses. And again, we're not the only people that do this. There are some great schools and and courses that teach wilderness medicine, but we are the only ones that focus on, you know, fly fishing and hunting specifically because, well, we're, we're guides in the industry, but um, is the recognition. I mean, that's huge where you're out with a client and, it, it, it's easier to recognize something's coming down the pipe before it gets, you know, before you get red flagged and it's too late. And it's just a big, it's a big part of what we teach is recognize things are coming, fix them or know when to push the red button, when to get out of there and make the call.
0: Yeah. And it kind of leads to my next question. You know, I know it's really hard to generalize, but I I suspect you've been doing this a long time. You've probably got the top two or three really stupid things that people do when they're outdoors, uh, that are big first aid mistakes. You you want to tick some of those off where you're just like, you know, it happened again.
1: (laughs) Totally. Well, you got to remember that's job security for us as well. So, you know, people need to make a few mistakes here and there. Um, you know, I think I can I can throw out the big net. I don't think I have to pick a single one because it's consistent, it's what we hear, it's the feedback we get from guides and outdoorsmen, without a doubt, and it's what we see as medical practitioners because it's kind of funny, Marvin, I actually respond as a paramedic and, and on the rescue team here to the actual rivers that I guide on. So it, it sort of solidifies, you know, w- what we're doing in these courses. But here's what I think. I think that people, and I mean, these are good professionals who have been doing this a long time. I think they think they are more prepared than they are. And what I mean by that is they take some kind of first aid class and they feel good about it. Because, again, they don't know what they don't know. They don't know there's uh, uh, another, I don't know the word, genre of medicine, i.e. wilderness medicine, that takes them you know beyond that 10 15 minutes um so a they they're they're not prepared medically for where they are and that translates right into what they're carrying um meaning their first aid kits uh and we have seen a lot of first aid kits and that's part of what we do we go through the the lodge or the outfitters you know first aid kits and our our tagline is this the bigger the first aid kit the less you know and if you think about it it makes sense. People just cram shit in a kit, go, I may need that. Oh, I better carry that. But when they have the background and the education and know what they can and can't do and what works and what doesn't, their kit is more specific and it gets smaller and smaller for for what they can do. So I just think it's, to answer a question, I can't pick a specific thing other than I think people think they're more prepared than they are And then when the real deal goes down, they learn real quick that they're not, if that makes sense.
0: Now, it makes a lot of sense. Like, what do you do when you're fit after 15 minutes, right? And you got a day and a half. It's a lot of time to fill, right?
1: Oh, that's right. That's right. And I mean, we could go into all sorts of cool stuff that, you know, we teach and people just don't realize tourniquets being one, um, you know, almost 95% of the courses we do, one of the questions is, you know, you put a tourniquet on, can you take it off? And everybody unanimously, no, absolutely not. Well, you can. And there's a procedure and you have to be taught and know what you're doing. And you have to, you know, keep up with the changes in medicine. But it's just little stuff like that, that sort of changes outcomes. Um, where had they known this? And and again, I'm, I, I'm not using a scare tactic here on your podcast by any means because it, it is what it is. We're fortunate enough to not only be medical providers and educators, but we're also guides. So we see this stuff and we, we know what happens out there, right?
0: Absolutely. And, and I know, you know another group that you partner with are the folks at Global Rescue. How did that partnership come about?
1: Yes. Totally. GR, great partners. Uh, we've been involved in, with those guys since day one. We, we actually opened our doors at Catabatic about the same time GR did um, over on the East Coast. And we knew some of their operators just from conferences and medical conferences. Um, and it worked out good. And here's why. So we provide sort of, there is some crossover. I uh, will say that just, you know, to keep everything on the up and up for what we do but we're sort of the ground folks. So we go in, do a course, do an emergency action plan for their whole operation, get them prepared when an emergency happens. GR, on the other hand, they're your evacuation and consultation membership company. So they come get you and get you home from anywhere on planet Earth. Um, They also have a consultation service if if you have that package or, or whatever, where you can call them up on a sat phone and say, here's what I got. What do you think? And they've got just an, an armory of physicians, Johns Hopkins, yeah, Johns Hopkins that they can tap into. They've got medics and, and uh, physicians answer phone 24-7. So that was the piece that we didn't have. And it just made sense. We could put a full package together for our clients and vice versa, where, you know, we get up to the point where there's an emergency that's occurred. You need to do the immediate life threat stabilization, and then you tap GR, and GR comes in and and pulls you out of there.
0: Yeah, it, it's so a
1: it's been a partnership.
0: Yeah, it's a great product. I've certainly used it and I've encouraged people to get it. I mean, you know, particularly when you start doing the more exotic trips through Yellow Dog and people like that, you know, you want to know you can get home. I even know people that use their product for skiing out west because they want to be able to get flown to be flown home to see their own orthopedist if they have a problem. I mean, it's pretty crazy.
1: Oh, yes. Yeah. There's there's no in their policy. This is not a sales pitch. There are partners and I'm just I'm talking to folks because I, everybody should have it that does what we do, period. Um if we weren't partners, I would have a policy, I and mean, obviously we have one. I wouldn't leave my front door without this. And it's cheap, Marvin. I mean people were holy cow, is dirt cheap the outcome of of what it would be if if shit really goes sideways.
0: Yeah, no, I'm amazed at how inexpensive it is. Even if you buy it by the year, I mean, it's insanely inexpensive.
1: Oh yeah, um, it's again, it's not a sales pitch at all. But we do what we do. Uh, we wouldn't leave. We don't. I, I wouldn't leave my front door without this policy in place. No doubt.
0: Well, well, that's awesome. And I, you know, one of the things I know that you do at Finns West and Catabatic is you're really. Uh, giving back and helping conservation groups and not-for-profit groups um, benefit from your medical knowledge and experience is really important to you. And I wanted you to kind of share with my listeners some of the work that you've done. I know you've done work with Oliver, but you've done work with people like Project Healing Waters too.
1: Yeah, totally. Um, Good. And, And thanks for bringing that up for sure. So we don't have any money. I mean, to do what we're all doing, we've got to have 13 jobs or whatever. We'd love to be able to you know, dump in a Coaster or Sims check, amount check to some of these uh, conservation efforts, but we just can't do it. I have to figure out, sort of give back. since We are in the, the hunt. And again, this sort of came about, or like Fly, where, you know, I'm sure your listeners know what they do, but the one way we can support the project is go to these places, and that missing link 90% of the time is the medical side. You know, these guys are t- training training the, the villagers, locals to, be, to, you know, stewardship of their nurses. Um But, again, on the weekend, come in and, and donate a course, and emergency action plan for the operation, so they're dialed. And yeah, we work, we work with Fish for Change on all their program locations, which is in, in Honduras for their guys. Same with Rewa Eco Lodge down in Guyana. We do work with Project Healing Waters. I, there's so many chapters around that, just the logistics of trying to get it together. They're, they're on the board for sure. Um, so yeah, that's that's our way of you know, doing the right thing, you know, and not having any money. <laughs>
0: Well, but the cool thing too is, I mean, in some of those places where, you know, Oliver does his work with IndieFly, I mean, they're insanely remote. You're not just helping, you know, guides look after, uh, fishermen and and hunters. You're helping guides be able to take care of their home, right. And their villagers.
1: Yeah, totally. And, and that, again, we've, we've done mission work is not the the right thing, but we've done projects in Nepal because we. We sort of um help set up the Everspace Camp Rescue and Medical Clinic over there, but you also want to give back to the community and that's where that was seated for us. Same thing in, in Guyana. I mean we did a we did a program for the, the actual I mean in the village where we were. Same with Honduras. We try to pass on to where it's not just for the guides and staff, but the the locals benefit when when we're down there for sure. Um. At least that's what that's what we
0: hope to do. Well, I mean, it just has to be. I mean, because that's they live remotely, so that's that's really great. Um, you know, as we kind of shift, I know you said you didn't kind of traditionally get into the fly fishing path, but it's time to talk about Taylo, the fishing guide. So, when did you decide you wanted to be a guide?
1: <laughs> oh well. Uh, it was two thirty in the morning. I'd gotten up on the animals and said, "I'm never doing this again. I got to choose something different." No, i
0: just, I'm just kidding. Um, well, that's pretty cool. You got you a know, time, I, date stamp, and everything. So what that date? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I, I made that up, so we're we're good there. You know, I don't know. I when I about I have not. I am not a three hundred and sixty-five full-time fly fishing guide. I mean, obviously, we I, I got in Chile. During the winters, I got here in Colorado when I can, but also have a business but I you know when I pulled the quivers back out and I, and Marvin, I don't want this to sound cliche, but it's the truth I mean I period when I pulled the sticks back out and hit the river, that was it i mean i I know it sounds cliche, but that was it. I even literally quit or not quit I've resigned or Stepped away from full-time and a lot of part-time EMS to focus on fishing. And I had an opportunity, worst opportunity of my life, to help open a fly fishing shop here in the area. Um, So that was sort of the transition. Um, And just from our education and teaching background, I think that's sort of what pushed me into the guiding. Love to teach. Um, I like to pass on what limited information I have. I needed to fill that monetary gap from pulling back from, you know, riding on the ambulance. So it just, it just kind of happened. I didn't go to a guide school. I didn't. I got thrown into the fire and just, I was on the South Platte guide and then kind of picked it up as I went. So again, I can't give you a date, but it was, you know, shortly after I pulled the quivers back and put my time in on the water to learn the waters and, and whatnot.
0: Well that's awesome, and who are some of the folks that kind of helped you uh work on your guide chops
1: you know on the guide chops for guiding
0: uh well your chops for being a guide right so who kind oh, of you chops, know chops yeah yeah sorry
1: I got look and we're both from the south we should understand each other Marvin pretty good I would hope. um you know that again i it would nobody in particular and I'm sure somebody's gonna listen to this and get pissed off, but there was a bunch of folks and they're not in magazines, they're not on the cover of you know, cover of any magazines. There were just guys that were apps that I guided out when I started that jumped in and you know, just showed me the ropes. As you know, Landon, uh Landon Mayor is is basically a neighbor of mine up here in, in, in Teller County on the South Platte basin. Um, I knew I would hit Landon up all the time. We still didn't fish together and weren't best buddies, but Landon, you know, he, he gave me some great advice early on as well. But I just, I think it was just the, the, the day-to-day hardcore guides that I hit up nonstop that sort of, you know, pushed me, pushed me through the process.
0: Well, that's awesome. And so I, I know you, you guide in the northern and the southern hemisphere. So let's talk a little bit about where you guide in Colorado and what you guide for.
1: Yeah, totally. So currently, uh, I guide for the Broadmoor. Um, the Broadmoor has a Orvis and Doris Lodge and a ranch up on the Terry River, which is the, which is a tributary to the South Platte, which is our main, obviously, watershed here where I live. Um, uh, but I, I'm primarily there, um, which, which is great. It's uh, again, I don't mean to sound cliche, but private water, uh, great clients is right up the road from where I live. So that's what I'm currently doing for those guys. We're walk wade, pretty much until you get down to the to the Arkansas River. All of our fishery up here is is walk wade, um, so not pulling any oars for sure. And then we've got just your your Colorado fish. We've got Browns and And rainbows and a few brookies thrown in here and there. So yeah, that's the fishery and and what I'm doing when I can in the summer here.
0: Awesome. But I I also know you've got a flats boat that you fish up in Colorado too. What are you doing with that?
1: Well, I just, okay. So I've learned that I, I need not to divulge too much information. I've learned this the hard way, but yeah, totally. So we've, um, we've got three, four reservoirs in our area, all again, south flat drainage reservoirs. And uniquely, we've got flat. I mean, we've got large areas of skinny water that trout are cruising on. So that's what we're doing. We're, we're pulling the flats just like you would at Abaco Lodge and sight casting to cruising cutties, rainbows, and the occasional brown that pop up on the, the flats it's it's changed my entire fishing outlook here in uh in colorado without a doubt
0: very cool and do you i don't want, you know and if you want to tell me you're fishing for landlocked tarpon you can do that but um do you also <laughs> do you uh do you also ch- per, perchance chase carp
1: well yeah and and that's kind of how this all started now granted i didn't invent shit. I mean, people have been doing this all over, just not in our area, but it was, we do, we do chase carp. So when the water warms up and fish are going deep and and the carp start to come out, that's sort of our, that's sort of our go-to for sure. But pike is what started it all, at least for, for me, um, standing, standing out chest deep in a weed bed, freezing your ass off. And going, yeah, something's got to change. And that's where the whole flats boat came up, where what, what can we do? We need to get a boat. And then, well, a regular lund or, or something won't work. You can't get four inches of water. And we started looking for a flats boat, bought one. And then we're three, three flats boats later, and we've we dialed it in. Park pike and then cruising trout on the flats. Absolutely.
0: Well, that's, that's super cool. And so, and I know you've got that, uh, off season gig where you get to go to Patagonian fish. How did that come about?
1: Yeah. So Chile was at right place, right time. I mean, obviously I don't have a Carter Andrews slash Oliver White international guiding resume, resume, or I didn't, whatever, four, four years ago when I got the gig, but here's where the whole catabatic medical thing has sort of tied into fishing. We manage the, the sort of the remote medicine on two of the research vessels for the Antarctic program, and their home port is in Punta Arenas, Chile. So one, four years ago, if I see again, I don't know, I think this is where my wife told me I was lying and I hadn't been down there that long. I remember four years ago, I needed to go down and check the vessels out and also wanted to fish. And as you know, uh, there's just, they don't have fly shops down there, especially that far South. Cause we are literally on Cape Horn. Uh, to see this fellow's name and said, Hey, he's got some helicopter operation, but it's the off season for him. He lives in Punta Reina. give him a call or email. And I did and said, I want to come fishing. I'll be down there. We started talking at the time. I was doing some hosted trip kind of deals. Um, to to Argentina and again we had the Broadmoor clients he said hey do you think you could get some of your folks to come down and I'm like well, I, sure before I left there two days later, I had five clients booked for their operation never been there he up to Andy and said hey um tech you've been around helicopters your whole life you guide uh why don't you come down and guide your group and I'm like, well, sweet. <laughs> so uh, that that just sort of happened. I was sort of concerned that I'd never seen the fishery in my life. And he said, look, don't worry about it. Trust me. And he was right. Um, uh, you could be blind with no legs and go down there and rip fish. Um, it was more of the helicopter safety, sort of the guide sort of side. I got home and Marvin, the dude, Rafa, called me and said, hey, I kind of need a guide for the season. <laughs> So I just kept ramping up and there you go, I'm down for the season and coming up four or five, four seasons later and been going ever since.
0: That's really cool. So when does your Colorado season end and when does your uh, Chilean season start?
1: Uh, So I'm going to go backwards. The Chilean season is at the very end of December. It's pretty sketch that last week of December because we are literally on Cape Horn. We stick out into the Antarctic Ocean. Um, so let's just say the first of January to about the second week or middle of March is the, is the Patagonia season. And then as you know, our Colorado season, we fish year round, but I usually start guiding about now if we didn't have 70 feet of snow on the ground. It's usually April through, well, April through what, November for at least when I got here.
0: Well, that keeps you pretty busy too, because you got to get back and do the show season stuff in the, uh, in the winter in the States.
1: Well, that yeah, that's for sure, and and then of course, obviously we have Fins West. I mean, so that our season—you didn't ask me this, but our season for Fins West is not now because all the guide services and lodges are operating. So we're not—you know—we can't roll in there and do a three or four day course or whatever for those guys. Um, So we sort of catch in between the guide seasons is when we catch people. So. Sort of the end of the Colorado God season, we start doing, um, catching the lodges for, to say, the South America side before they start up. And then in in the fall, no, spring, we start to grab the North American lodges before they open up. So it all sort of rolls with this continuous craziness of fishing and teaching, really.
0: Wow. Holy cow. It makes me tired. Um, <laughs> so I always ask all of my uh, guests that guide to share what they think the biggest misconception people have about the life of a fishing guide.
1: Ooh. Again, I, I am not that, that 365 day guide, full-time kind of thing. And And I don't pull oars. That's another thing, because I'll tell you what I'm going to say. I think it's harder than people think it is. I mean, we always hear, all of us, that you got it made. You got it. it, What a lifestyle. It's awesome. You get to do what you love, and that's all correct. But I just think it's harder than than people think. And, again, that's coming from a dude that's a walk-wave guide. I'm not pushing a boat on a falling platform, and I'm not pulling oars on a river. That's coming from a walk-wave guide. I mean, I, as Landon, I, you know, Landon and I talked about this, there's a lot of scouting. You kind of got to know your fishery and know the different, different changes with flows and weather. And you got to get your, you got to get your mess together. Um, we're not fishing, that's for sure, when we're with clients. So, you know, you're working with clients, you're walking a thousand miles a day back and forth. So I just think the biggest misconception is, don't get me wrong; it's great, and love it. And I would never do anything different, but I think it's harder than what people think it is. A lot of time and effort go into being a, uh, and I should say, a successful and professional guide. I believe.
0: Yeah it it's a gr- it's a grind, and I mean, it's amazing. You know, particularly like for you because you've got a longer season than most guides. Um, you know, but it's crazy. You know, talking to guys here in Western North Carolina, and they're talking about guiding like two hundred, two hundred twenty five days a year. I mean. That's tough, even if you love it.
1: Yeah, totally. I'm again, and I, I, I'm, there's no misconception on my part. Under 250 days of wars and I don't push a flat around for for months. And yeah, to get up and and row a boat all along every single day, I, it's suet so it, and I'm tired. Now, granted, I'm old, too. i hold to it. I just don't think it's, again, one well, of the misconceptions that, you know, party there, we fish a bunch, and you know good fish. You can't fish when you're guiding. So, <laughs> so yeah.
0: Yeah, it g- generally means you're doing something wrong when the guide says, hand me your rod for a second. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's, right. That's right. Even though today, I don't know, Andrew, hey, I don't throw this in because you, you just said uh, and and it, struggling big time and i've done everything i could and all my all my folks had caught fish and it was a quick trip today because of the weather and as she said i'm done i'm completely done and uh she handed me the rod back i did a drift just handed her the rod <laughs> she brought it in and it made her day so yeah we get a fish every once in a while i guess
0: <laughs> well, there you go. So you're you're in kind of full guiding mode, but are, do you have any um, speaking engagements or um, appearances around the Colorado area or anywhere else you want to let folks know about?
1: Yes, you know, Barbara, we don't. Um, but this is our, this is our, between, there's really no shows going on. So I we're I'm we're guiding. We're either doing our medical side of things and and guiding but as far as courses and, and shows and presentations there might be a one-off here and there at a trout unlimited that that i have forgotten about but nope we're kind of we're chilling until fall time and then we ramp back up
0: yeah be, that would be that's kind of what i expected but i I feel duty-bound to ask that question um before we we're full of thanks yeah no and before we leave tonight why don't you let folks know i guess where they can find you if they want to fish with you and also if they want to uh talk to you about catabatic and Fins West.
1: Yeah, cool. Easy. Um it's FinnsWest dot com. So F-I-N-N-S. Uh W E S T uh dot com. Wait, did I say that right? I gotta look at my business. Finns West, yeah, that's right. Two N's there. FinnsWest dot com. Um, they can get in touch with us. Our e- emails on there as well. It talks talks about our program uh, direct link right in, um, for our chilly heli season as well. And, uh, yeah, man, that should, that should give, give them all the information they need, if not more than
0: they need. <laughs> well, th- well, that's awesome, Talo. I appreciate you spending, uh, a snowy May evening with me talking about ev- uh, everything you've done and, you know, hopefully it falls out pretty soon and, uh, folks, um, hope you've enjoyed it. Um. Want to give a shout out again to tonight's sponsor, the Tucka CG Fly Shop. And again, if you like the podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you'd share it with a friend. Uh, give us a review in iTunes and uh, subscribe in the podcatcher of your choice. We're in the uh, middle of doing some advertising stuff and it would really help us out. Well, Taylor, I appreciate it. Tight lines, everybody.
1: Hey, okay, Cole. Thank you, Marvin. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. To
0: be safe out there. I uh, no, It's been, a, been great. Have a good evening.
1: You
0: to